Hey, Richard Gottlieb. Hey, man. How you doing? Doing great. We got another good show today. We certainly do. And we will get right into it. But first, this is the Playground Podcast with me, Chris Byrne, my co-host and cohort, Richard Gottlieb. We are presented by Global Toy Experts, The Toy Guy, and Beacon Media Group. And Richard, I'm letting you do the honors. We got a below-the-radar guy and a below-the-radar company on today, Bully, which is, I believe, either the or one of the biggest providers of private-labeled toys in the U.S. and maybe the world. I don't know. We're going to find out. Welcome, Chad Garrett. Well, hello, Chris. Hello, Richard. Thanks for having me on. It should be fun. So, Mr. Mysterio, <laughs> start off by telling us about you. Well, yeah, it is. Uh, this is not something we normally do. We do like to fly under the radar, and we do like to say we are the biggest toy company no one has ever heard of, and that is by And design. we won't tell anyone. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you guys told me up front that this is completely confidential and nobody will ever hear our discussion. So I felt at ease. Um, so a little bit about me. I was born and raised in Southern California, went to college in uh, BYU. And then after that, went to work for a couple of golf club manufacturers as Cobra and Lynx. And then the uh, company went bankrupt. I post, posted my resume on the internet. Some headhunter in L.A. said, hey, you want to work in toys? And then I worked for Maui Toys for a number of years. And then uh, we sold the business to Jack Specific, and I worked for Jack Specific. And then I've been a bully for six years, and it's been a fun ride. Toys is an exciting industry. And tell us about bully. As I mentioned, we do fly under the radar. We've had tremendous growth over the last six or seven years, and you are right. We are... Um, there's no MPD data for this, but I have enough data points. We are the largest private brand toy supplier in the world. Um, there's one other company that does a lot in dolls that might be close, but I, I'm pretty sure based on um, what I know that we are the largest private brand supplier. But we are a hybrid company. You know, Usually you have your national brand companies and then you have your private brand companies. We play both. So we have four of our own national brands that are marketed and sold throughout the world, as well as we do a ton of private brand and work closely with uh, all of our retail partners. Now you did not start Bowling, no. but you now run Bowling. So it started, this is actually a funny story. Uh, 40 years ago, there was a couple, Ronald and uh, Stella Wong from Hong Kong. They moved to the U.S. Uh, Ronald was a nuclear engineer graduated, was looking for work, and realized you needed uh, clearance from the government in order to work in the nuclear industry and couldn't get a job. And so his wife's parents owned a toy factory, and he started importing toys. <laughs> and wow. so a nuclear engineer basically uh, started the, the company, and Stella passed last year due to cancer in her 60s at early, which was really right. tragic yeah. for us. Too bad. Yeah. And it was kind of uh, Ronald, and then there was a gentleman by the name of Terry Davis, a, a toy veteran who's worked at Imperial for 20 years and, uh, and several other toy companies. They were kind of running the show. Uh, Terry was based here in the U.S. and was running this. Ronald was based in Hong Kong, and they would work back and forth. Um, and both have since retired. A lot of people say, are you guys a Chinese company or an American company? 
And I always answer it this way. I say, well, it depends who's asking. <laughs> and uh, I, and really it comes down to is Ruben, who is my closest colleague over there. We were born and raised 13 miles apart from each other in the suburbs of LA, wow. 13 years apart. And uh, obviously we didn't know each other at the time, but he was born and raised wearing Vans and Levi's just like I did. He went to UCLA, got his MBA from Duke. He's American just like we are, but he obviously he looks Chinese. And 10 years ago, he moved over to Hong Kong for the first time. Now he's married to Chinese wife. And so it's really nice to have this hybrid, you know, so when it's we're dealing with factories, we like to say we're a Chinese company because that's how we get the best pricing. Right. When we're dealing with retailers who want more Western style designs, then we say we're an American company. So it just kind of depends on who the audience is. We're not trying to play games, but that's kind of we are this hybrid model, both from a private brand, a national brand, but we're also this hybrid model of a Chinese American company. And what's the advantage of that other than pricing and dealing with factories? What's the advantage of being a hybrid company just in terms of design or in terms of structure? How does that work in your favor? Yeah, there's several different ways. So. From a private brand perspective, we really get into uh, all the design of toys. We understand some of the trends and they ask us to work on things. And conversely, from their side, when they're doing private brand for the last, I don't know, 40 years, they've been dealing with Chinese companies who maybe don't understand the trends and styles and what looks cool in the in Western retail section. So what we really try to do is bring both. So we're like, we can we can talk the talk over here and walk the walk over here. So it kind of is the best of both worlds. And also with our retailers, when they see us doing branding, when they see us doing market research, when they see us doing content creation and 2D animation, 3D animation and all this kind of stuff, they can leverage some of that stuff of their own brands. And what we really do is sometimes we have items that we produce in our own national brand that sometimes they'll take private brand or sometimes they'll say, hey, let's take your our private brand. It looks better in your packaging. Let's put it in your national brand. And we try to be really easy and just try to say yes. Uh, and yeah. every now, <laughs> that, that's always the best way. Well, you know, the private label business is a little controversial. Sure. Some toy companies feel they spend a lot of time and money developing their intellectual property, and then once a retailer sees it's a strong product, they do their own version of it. So I think you're very valuable to have on the show to, one, teach us a little bit about the private label industry and what the dynamic is between the producer and the retailer. And I'm interested that as private label has begun to be almost premium in certain categories of product, what is the future in the toy industry? Private brand, and you know, I've learned a lot of this over the last six years myself. Probably in the last 10 years, private brand has changed quite a bit. The old school thinking of private brand is, hey, they're just going to come up with some four-color packaging. They're going to knock off national brand and sell it for cheaper or source just random stuff in China and throw it in a pack. That's not the case any longer. These private brands are very important to these retailers. So they take a lot of care. They care about their social media, about what the brand perception is. They do a lot of market research and they want to compete with the big boys. And so the days of just knocking off and selling it for cheaper, yes, that might have been true and in the 90s and early 2000s, but in the last few years, that's not the case. Mm -hmm. They really want to sell 
innovative new products. So we probably, I would say 90% of the time we are opening up new tooling on innovative and creative designs. Now to your point, Richard, does it happen where sometimes somebody says, hey, this is a hot toy from a national brand. Hey, we'd like to do something you know, similar. It has happened. I'm not going to lie to you, but I would say that is the exception, not the norm. And it's very rare. Um, I can only count probably on one hand the times that anybody has asked me to do that. I know national brands give it a negative stigma and try to say, oh, they're taking all of our great ideas and stuff like that. But I think that's a little bit of a conspiracy theory rather than reality. And a lot of what you do are really gorgeous basics. You're sold out of the one toy I want, which is the circular <laughs> saw, the children's circular saw. You're sold out right now. I'll have to wait. But but you do a lot of really great, simple products. And those are some of the products that the big brands walked away from. Child Guidance, a brand I worked on years ago, they don't make those basics anymore. They've left that market opportunity open for companies like you. That's exactly correct, is at the end of the day, some of these basics are still there. Now, but even though some of those basics, Chris, it's one of those things where people want the basics, but they want a new modern version of it. Sure. So, uh, you know, it's, and it might be subtle. It might be, you know, how do we make PVC dinosaurs more realistic? How do we make them so they're better quality? How can we increase the paint ops? You know, what are the best selling dinosaurs? You sell a lot of really gorgeous dinosaurs and your basic dinosaurs. This is going to be a year for dinosaurs because there's a movie with dinosaurs opening up. Talk about how retailers want to balance their entire dinosaur offering and and where you guys can fit into that. Well, dinosaurs is actually a a relatively easy one. It's not like a normal movie where once, you know, the movie has passed on and they moved on to the next license, dinosaurs are always going to sell. Now they might buy a little heavy, might, you know, obviously, you know, when a movie's coming out, we'll order a little bit more, have more SKUs, but it's not like dinosaurs are not going to sell. So it's actually one of the easier evergreen type things to chase than normal. I'm interested in the dynamic between a company like yours, Bully, and the retailer. So first of all, do you go to the retailer with ideas or do they typically come to you? There's not one answer because it depends on the retailer and also depends on the individual you're dealing with. And at some of them, we get together and we both have our Pinterest boards up on our computer. And we are just literally going, hey, look at this. This is cool. What if we did this there? And there's other ones that that trust factor is not quite built up yet. And then whenever there's somebody who's new, we just have to build that trust up with just like you have a new buyer. You know, you have to build that trust up with them as well. So whether it's with the PD people, it's the same type of concept as well. For retailers who may be listening to the show and are not sure if they're big enough to do a private label brand, what is the gateway point for, for someone to be able to profitably enter privately? Well, the first thing you have to ask yourself is whether you want to create new tooling or not. So if you're going to use our existing tooling or tooling that's in the marketplace, it's then it's or you're really talking about packaging MOQs, and that will run three or 4,000 pieces of SKU. If you're looking to create your own proprietary product, then you got to amortize the tooling over that. And that can vary, but anywhere from 10,000 units to 50,000 units based on the cost and different factors involved. 
So it, it just depends on what they want to do. So we have somebody, for example, we do a lot of business with, they have a couple hundred stores. It's probably not enough to open new tooling, but you know, we have 350 SKUs in our range. So we can go on a lot of different rounds. So whether it's RC, whether it's preschool, whether it's vehicles, it's dolls, you name it, uh, spring, summer, um, and probably one of the most exciting new ventures is in eco-friendly toys. And that has been the, probably the biggest game changer for our company in the last few years. Well, you're kind of a first mover in that area, aren't you, with some new technology? That's correct, yeah. Um, you can tell us about it. Chris Byrne won't tell anyone. <laughs> <laughs> so this is our secret, right? Just pinky right. promise? NDA, I, I NDA. <laughs> I signed a disclosure. You're right. <laughs> well, yes. Um, you know, we developed this uh, material called EcoWood 2.0. We worked with the farming industry and within China, believe it or not, it's actually quite interesting. And we take recycled corn husks, wheat straw, and then, you know, the greenhouse covers for the farming industry. We take all that and we recycle all that and make toys out of the materials. Yeah. And it's pretty revolutionary. Originally, when we first started it, it was only about 30% recycled materials that we were mixing in with virgin plastic. And then we're all the way up now to 94.5% recycled materials in there. So it's really a game changer. And I was reading or was listening, like Lego is trying to get into this right now. And they, I think they said they're investing $400 million, mm -hmm. 150 employees, and they won't reach full production until 2030. Right. And which is, I mean, they're a huge company. The nice part of that being a small, nimble company is we all did this in two years. And it is going to revolutionize the toy industry because instead of shipping virgin plastic, this is all recycled content. And the beautiful part is when you pick it up, it has this wooden, musty smell to it. You can see little specks of the organic material in it. So the consumer knows that it's recycled content. A lot of times when you're selling recycled content, other than the packaging saying it's recycled or some type of uh, eco-friendly toy, they don't know after they take it out of the product. What about the cost differential? I know that with, with the price of oil going skyrocketing right now, that, that's going to change the futures for, for plastics, for traditional plastics. But where does your material fit in the spectrum of costs uh, for materials for toys? That is probably the number one question we get from our retail partners. Not surprised. <laughs> correct, correct. Um, and it depends. You know, we had a lot of discussion about this early on is we knew we were really one of the only people who had done this. You know, we have patents pending in China and the U.S., um, trademarks, and we have a lot of our IP built up. And at the end of the day, we could charge quite a bit for this, but we also want high adoption rates, right? I mean, this is obviously from a, a, a business standpoint, but also, you know, from an environmental standpoint, you know, we thought it made a lot of sense. So we really didn't take a premium on it. It depends somewhere between 15 and 30% more than virgin plastic. And it just depends on the item. And I think you're going into the Gen Z consumer who is very concerned about sustainability. So I think you've got a leg up or a lever with that community that they are looking for something beyond just the, the polypropylene that will never go away. <laughs> <laughs> that is correct. That Gen Z to millennials, they're becoming parents, but there's also like in preschool, grandparents buy a lot of it. And there's this millennial grandparent, if you will, that are don't think of themselves as older and they want cool new toys and they don't want the same old plastic and they care about it as well. 
But the one thing is, it's still toys one-on-one. You have to have great product, great packaging at the right price point. Yeah. And just saying, hey, this is eco-friendly and it's not that exciting of a toy, that doesn't work either. So we have, a, we kind of like say, is the eco-friendly nature of it is the gravy. Everything else is the meat and potatoes. We can't walk away from the traditional toy business that we know that works. Are you selling or willing to sell the raw material to other toy companies? Good question. It's not as simple as that. Um, so we do have a special formula and that's part of, there's a few different patents and one of it is like KFC secret formula or Coca-Cola secret formula. We do have that. But then also, even if we were to give the raw material to another toy company, they wouldn't be able to make it. There's so many trial and it. We've ruined injection molding machines. Some of the toys burn when we do this. We've had trial and error like crazy to make it safe. And if someone wanted to see what one of these toys looks like, yeah, you have them on your website? Rue Crew is the brand that we sell this EcoWood material. And it's sold in 35 different countries, 40 to 50 different retailers. I mean, it's really blown up. I mean, we just created this two, three years ago. And we would be open to some type of licensing arrangement, but it's not as, it, it probably have to be made in some of our factories because they're all trained on how to make this. It does take some time and effort. It's not easy. And to make sure it's safe and doesn't break and it can pass drop tests and choke hazards and all that kind of stuff is I think we would be a little cautious just handing that over to somebody because they yeah. could ruin it. You know, I'm always fascinated by new materials coming into the toy industry. And, and you're right. They have to pass all kinds of tests in order to be introduced in the toy industry. How does this material compare to traditional plastics in molding and in other types of, of fabrication? So our first samples that came out were so brittle that it was like a toothpick. I mean, it would really break. So we really had to play around with the materials um, to make sure that it, it was safe. And, you know, the hardest thing, whenever you introduce something new, nobody has done it. Nobody wants to do it. You know, there's a lot of problems uh, that are involved there. But we finally got people to buy in to what we were doing. A, it's something new and innovative. I mean, you're going to get people's attention as opposed to just goes, here's our injection molded plastic piece in a four colored packaging. And somehow that's going to be different. I mean, there are ways, obviously, to do it. But we really had to work hard in order to make it. And then the other challenge is getting testing involved because the material doesn't exist. There aren't existing testing out there for it. So all of a sudden QA and QC is sitting there going, whoa, 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 time out. We had you know one person who wanted to fumigate all of our toys because they're saying, well, you know, if it has organic materials, it could have bugs in there. And we, so they literally in one place, they fumigated all of our plastic toys, if you will, inside of a container. So because it, everybody kind of throws out of sorts. So we always run into issues with different markets bringing something new into it. Make sure it's safe. Does it sell? Extremely well. That's one of the reasons why we have uh, sold it into so many different markets. And as much as in the U.S. market, we think, oh, people care about eco-friendly toys. Go to Europe. Go to oh, Australia. Gosh, yes. Oh, yeah. gosh, yes. yeah. Yeah. That's where... We've sold it quite well in the United States. Mass market retailers have picked it up all over the place, but it's really within uh, Europe and Australia. And retailers that normally, I've been knocking on doors for years. I couldn't get their attention. And all of a sudden we have meetings and we have orders a few weeks later. It's like, whoa, whoa, th this is kind of crazy how fast this happens. Green Toys does a great job because they use recycled milk cartons and their material. But 
The other alternative that people have been trying was this thing called bioplastics. And yes. bioplastics, so here's the deal. It's a little bit of a red herring because bioplastics is oil extracted from either sugarcane or corn husk. It's still oil. It still takes 400 to 1,000 years to decay. You got to use land, water, pesticides to grow it all. There was a study done that you know somebody was going to replace their grocery bags in a retailer with all this bioplastics. And they showed that it was worse for the environment using bioplastics than if they would just use regular plastic. By the way, there's a lot of big Lego, Mattel, we're all originally saying we're going to do bioplastics, but you're starting to see them backpedal from that and they're all going to recycle plastics because that's much better for the environment. And there's this term called greenwashing, which is people saying they're eco-friendly, but it really is not. And bioplastics is, in my opinion, is one of those things. And I think most people's opinion is that. So it was kind of hot a couple of years ago and you're seeing everybody kind of backpedal from it. I I think that's true. It was largely a marketing issue. You know, it's from a renewable resource and that was all they needed to say. And they scored the points. But when you dig down into it and it's not really what they think it is and the cost differential is greater, what you're talking about is the next evolution of that going from renewable, which is okay, but to reset to using recycled materials, which is actually has a lot more integrity to the consumer. 100 percent true. And at Bully, what we really try to do is for many years, we are a value based company. And so that premium, if I were to give you one of our Rue crew made out of this eco wood products and say a vehicle, and you were to compare it to another national brand oil based, you sit there and go, wow, your price is fantastic. But that's because, you know, we're not working on huge margins like some of these national brands are. So we really priced it aggressively. And I think that's why we've got so much placement. And I, I could show you pictures from end caps and displayers that we're doing all around the world. It's really blown up to be a, a, a big deal and a game changer for us. And I think a lot of it is we figured this out all on our own with our small little company without the millions and, and hundreds of employees. And that's all because we were able just to, there's no bureaucracy, there's no politics, there's no agenda from internal people saying that was my idea. We just got it done. So if someone wants to know about more about Bully and or wants to know more about this new material, how do they go about making contact? Uh, my email address is chad at bully.com. So B-O-L-E-Y.com. And we would entertain any type of licensing arrangement. They're just going to have, it's not as simple as just handing over some pellets, but it's definitely doable. And I can just tell you, anybody who wants to get into this industry, it's a lot of headache. It is a royal pain in the rear. And uh, when we first came out, it's 30% recycled materials. And we had a buyer who said to us, well, I don't want to buy it. You know, it's, it's not, 30% is not enough. And I said, you don't have to buy it. I said, but what are your choices? You're going to go buy just virgin plastic and somehow that's better? Because I kept saying, we're kind of like a hybrid vehicle, right? There's this gas guzzling vehicle that we've been driving for a hundred years. And we all know that we're going to be driving electric vehicles in the future. But this hybrid vehicle was the stepping stone, this bridge over to right. this electric vehicle. And that's what we were for a number of years. But about a year ago is when we got to 94.5%. And all of a sudden we're saying, this is the electric vehicle. This can be the solution. And the consumer's reacting because they can see that it's recycled materials, that they can smell the organic material, that there's a little bit of magic that happens and they feel better about it. And less likely they're going to throw it away a year, two, three years down the road 
like they would a normal plastic toy because there's a little bit more uh, specialness to it. So, Chad Garing, we're going to ask you the question we've asked everybody on season four of the Playground podcast. What was your favorite play experience as a child? The one I remember the most is probably as a, a little bit of an older child was He-Man, the, the power of Grayskull. You know, that was uh, um, and maybe a close second was this is going to my teenage years was Tecmo Bowl on Atari. That was a little football game as well. It was a lot of fun. So those are the things probably the most memorable to me. And classic play. So that led you to where you are today. It was very classic play in, <laughs> in, in both platforms. So Chad Garing of Bowley, thank you so much for spending the time with us today. Uh, we really appreciate it. Hey, it was a pleasure getting uh, to speak to both of you. And thanks for everything you guys do for the toy industry. It is a fascinating podcast to listen to. And I learn every single time I listen. Yay. Thank you. <laughs> This is the Playground Podcast with me, Chris Byrne, my co-host and cohort, Richard Gottlieb. We are supported by Global Toy Experts, The Toy Guy, and Beacon Media Group. We'll see you next time.